0: Good morning. Good morning those of you who know Scott Gilmore know that I'm not him. He asked me to uh, he called me and asked me to uh, uh, serve in his stead because he was needing to be at work getting prepared for this afternoon's spec. Uh, uh, activities at the pumpkin ranch, uh, pumpkin harvest down at their ranch today. This morning's Old Testament reading is from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. It's found on page 294 in your pew Bibles. I invite you to uh, read along with me there. Uh, Before we read, let me uh, uh, ask you to join us in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for another beautiful morning. Lord, we thank you for the beauty and knowledge that we receive from your word. We just ask that this morning you would open our hearts and minds to really hear what you have us to learn today from this passage of your scripture. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Once again, we're reading uh, from 1 Samuel, chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn son was Joel, and the name of the second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all the way, all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, From the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Thanks, Stan.
1: I'll tell Scott you did a great job in his stead. That was great. What is the gospel of grace exactly? Uh, A few weeks ago, uh, Will Essler was on a plane flight from uh, London down to Nairobi, Kenya. You're going to hear more about that trip in a moment by Jim Dosh. But they were heading down to work with some of our ministry partners that we have in Kenya. And by God's providential grace, he sat next to a Kenyan who is a, uh, a Jainism, uh, who, who adheres to Jainism. Jainism is an ancient religion from India. You may not have heard of Jainism. I really hadn't either until Will told me this story. And as they sat on this six-hour flight from London to Nairobi, they began to talk to one another about what they believed. And, and Will graciously listened to this man share about his faith and, and what he understood. And Jainism, they don't believe in one god. They have multiple gods, more similar to Hinduism or perhaps Buddhism. And so as they were talking about this, then there was an opportunity for, uh, for Will to share the gospel of grace. And so he shared the, the good news of God's son that we have in Jesus Christ. And when he had finished his sharing about God's love that we have in Jesus, this man who, who lives in Kenya, now just to give you an idea of Kenya, Kenya is a predominantly Christian country. There are four million Presbyterians in Kenya. Kenya's smaller than Texas. In all of the United States, we have 2 million Presbyterians. There are a lot of Presbyterians in Kenya. I mean, it's a concentrated country. 10% of the population is Presbyterian. You would have thought that this man would know the, the gospel. But after sharing the gospel with this man on this plane, the man says, I've never heard that before. How is that possible? How is it possible for a man to live in a predominantly Christian country and never hear the gospel of grace before? I understand this man went to Roman Catholic school as a boy. His children now attend a Christian school. He's surrounded by Presbyterians. How is it possible for him to have never heard the gospel of grace before? You know, living in Amarillo, we can assume that everyone's heard the, the gospel of grace. But the fact is, I'm not sure that everyone truly understands it. Modern day reformed Theologian and Presbyterian pastor R.C. Sproul tells a story of a a recent survey done at a Christian booksellers' convention. Everyone at this booksellers' convention were Christians. It was a Christian booksellers' convention. And they were asked the simple question What is the gospel? The most popular response to the question, What is the gospel? was The gospel is that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. My friends, that's not the gospel, that's not the full gospel. I mean, if we look at the scriptures, we can see that, yes, God loves us, but he doesn't necessarily have a a wonderful plan for our lives. Just ask the apostle Paul. God called Paul to become a minister to the Gentiles, to preach the gospel of grace. And as we continue our journey through the book of Acts, we will see that that Paul, he is flogged, he is imprisoned, he is stoned and left for dead. life was not wonderful for the apostle Paul. In fact, if you remember in Acts 9 when we read about the call of Paul, God said that he was going to have to show Paul all that he was going to have to suffer for the name of Jesus. Yes, the gospel isn't just about a wonderful life. What is the gospel exactly? What is the gospel of grace that the apostle Paul preached specifically? To find out, I would encourage you to turn in your Red Pew Bibles to Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, beginning with verse 13, it may be found on page 1172 of your Red Pew Bible. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his Holy Spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his Holy Word. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you again for your Holy Spirit who inspired Luke to put pen to paper, to give an orderly account of the first century church the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. God, we pray that as we read your word this morning that by your spirit you might give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that might be opened and transformed at the reading and preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Acts chapter 13 Beginning with verse 13, listen to the word of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. I want to stop there just for a moment. It's kind of a long passage. We're going to break it up into two different readings. Now, as, as we read this text this morning we can see that Paul is on his first missionary journey, he enters into a, a Jewish synagogue and he begins to preach to both Jew and Gentile, non jew alike, because there are some Gentiles who've begun to follow Yahweh who are now in the synagogue. And in the midst of all that's going on culturally with this white supremacist movement and stuff, I feel the need to just emphasize that Paul preached to both Jew and And Gentile alike. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is for Jew and Gentile alike. It's for every race of man, every creed, every tongue is good news. The gospel of Jesus. In fact, as I look around this sanctuary, I don't see too many people that are probably of Jewish descent, so I'm grateful that Paul preached to Gentiles, right? We're all Gentiles, we're not Jewish. And yet, Paul preaches this powerful message. But listen to this message again closely. Notice what is the subject of almost every sentence of this message. Beginning with verse 16 again, we'll look at that. Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, you can see here on the the, the first subject here, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted alarm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Notice that the subject of almost every sentence at the first part of the sermon is God God is the one who is directing all of Israel's history. God is the one who chose Israel to be his people. God is the one who led them out of Egypt. God is the one who put them in the wilderness for 40 years. God is the one who destroyed seven nations so they might enter into Canaan, the promised land. God is the one who gave Israel judges and then prophets. God is the one who eventually gave Israel Saul, then King David, and now God is giving all of us Jesus. When we think about sharing the gospel of grace, it begins with God. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. God is the primary subject of the gospel. It's about God's love for all of us. God loves us before we ever loved him. Dr. Laura Smith, associate professor of theology at Calvin College and one of the authors of the essential tenets of our denomination, Said a few years ago at a conference, as Reformed people, we don't start our theology by talking about our personal experience of salvation. We start our theology by talking about God. Our theology, theology is basically study of God, begins with God. God is the principal actor, the principal agent, the principal subject of the gospel. Now, don't get me wrong, each one of us needs to make a, a heartfelt commitment to Jesus. We need to respond to God's grace through faith. But if we want to understand our salvation correctly, we have to begin with God. For God is the one who sent his son to this earth to save us, to die is the perfect sacrifice. God is the one who raised him on the third day, conquering sin and death on our behalf. Yes, God is the one who primary, primarily acts for our salvation. We simply respond to his grace. Now, it's true we have free will. I don't deny that there's free will. Calvin talks about free will. But as you read the scriptures, you'll see that time and time again, humanity's free will often leads to sin, doesn't it? It was was Adam and Eve and their free will that led them to eat the forbidden fruit. It was Cain's free will that led him to kill his brother Abel. In fact, the first verse uh, that has humanity as the subject is verse 21 of the text that I just read to you. And in verse 21, we read, then they asked for a king. The people of Israel, prior to that, were a theocracy. They were led by God. And and as Stan read just a moment ago, the people of Israel come to Samuel and say, we'd like a king like all the other nations. And we can see that from 1 Samuel that asking for a king was actually a rejection of God. Yes, humanity's action did not lead to obedience. It led them to ask for a king so they might be like every other nation, ultimately rejecting God's reign and God's leadership. Yes, the free will of man often leads to sin, doesn't it? That's why we need God to act on our behalf. The gospel, which literally means good news, is that God does not abandon us in our sin, but God in his great love for us. sends his son, who was without sin, who lived in perfect obedience to our heavenly father, doing what we could never do, lived in a perfect obedience, then died as the perfect sacrifice for our sins, then he conquered sin and death on the third day when he rose again, giving us victory over sin and death if we'll simply believe in him. God did all of this for us. Whenever we share the gospel of grace, we've got to begin with God. For God so loved the world. It's not that we love God, but that God first loved us. God is the primary subject of the gospel of grace. Let's continue reading this powerful sermon that Paul preached to the church in Antioch of Pisidia. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilty guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed, to have Christ executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you have not, could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterance of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning them. In verse 27, Paul is making sure that we see that the condemnation of Jesus, the death of Jesus is ultimately a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He continues this in verse 29 when we read, and when they had carried out all that was written of him, all that was written in the Old Testament of Jesus, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. If you remember from the gospel accounts, when Jesus is crucified, all of Jesus' disciples grieve. They mourn because they believe it's the end of the story. When Jesus was crucified, darkness came over the land. When Jesus was crucified, all hope seemed to be lost. When Jesus was crucified, it looked like it was the end of the story. But God had another plan. As we continue to read in verse 30 of our text this morning. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnesses to the people and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Beginning with this quote from Psalm 2, Paul begins to quote various passages of scripture to help us see very clearly that the death and resurrection of Jesus is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that it's all a part of God's grand plan for our salvation. It wasn't chance wasn't luck. No, it was God's plan. In fact, when the Jews become jealous of the preaching of Paul and Barnabas, Paul actually quotes Isaiah 49, verse 6. We read in verses 46 to 47, it says, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since so you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Throughout his sermon, Paul has been quoting the Old Testament to help us see that all of that's happened with Jesus and his resurrection and now even the rejection of the Jews rejecting this message. This is a fulfillment of, of God's grand plan for our salvation. And then, notice what Luke writes in verse 48 after the Jews have rejected Jesus and the message they bring and the Gentiles embrace it. We read, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. Now this last phrase that I've actually underlined there on the screen, that troubles a lot of Christians today, specifically Western Christians, because well, well, we like to, to focus on our choices. You know, we have free will, and we like to celebrate the good choices we make. You know? And so this idea that as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. It challenges us to think that, well, there was an appointment made for us before we ever made our decision. The Greek word for appointed here is in the passive voice. They were passively appointed. They didn't make their own appointment. God had made the appointment for them before they ever came to believe. That's what Luke's saying. It's interesting, when I was in Europe a few weeks ago, we uh, traveled to various parts of Germany and France and Switzerland to retrace the steps of the great reformers like Martin Luther and, and John Calvin. that It's the 500-year anniversary when Martin Luther put the 95 Thesis on the door of the Church of Wittenberg, launching the Protestant Reformation. Our denomination exists because of what Martin Luther did. And so we went to celebrate that and to see these wonderful historical sites. Well, as we went from one city to the next city, we always had to check into a, a new hotel. And our travel agent had done a wonderful job of making the appointments for us. So that all we had to do was show up and they gave us a key. I didn't have to do anything. They gave us a key and I simply received that key. God has been working ahead of us, before us, so that we might be saved. Don't get me wrong, we do have free will. But as we can see throughout scripture, our free will often leads to bad choices. And so God chose to save us, to work ahead of us, to help us so that we might be saved. New Testament scholar and ordained Methodist minister Ben Witherington III writes this about verse 48. Through Acts we have seen Luke's emphasis on God's plan and sovereign hand guiding the circumstances in life of Jesus and then in the life of the church. And here we are told that the Gentiles who came to faith were already within God's predetermined plan this is certainly as strong a statement about predestination as one find in Luke Acts. Now, just real quick, Ben Witherington is a Methodist. Methodists aren't really known for promoting predestination. We get all the credit for that. We shouldn't, but that's what we're known for, right? But Ben Witherington, a Methodist, says this is as strong a statement about predestination as you're going to find in all of Luke and Acts. Now, just so you know, my father was Methodist. My mom was Baptist. Compromised the marriage to become Presbyterian. And 50 years of marriage in the Presbyterian church, they have learned that they were predestined to be Presbyterian. So they're (laughs) grateful to be Presbyterian. (laughs) Now, we get all the rap for being predestination, but we didn't make it up, okay? This is in the Bible. In fact, we're not the only ones who talk about it. Luther spoke about it. St. Augustine spoke about it because it's a biblical doctrine. You find it in Romans 8, Ephesians 1. Even the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John speak of our election, that God chooses us before we choose him. It was interesting while we were in uh, Wartburg Castle. We've got a picture of the castle here. Now Martin Luther had to stand for what he believed. He was tried at the Diet of Worms, and he was asked to recant of his writings, where he would preached the gospel of grace that we're saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. That the scriptures are going to be our authority in faith and faith in life, not the Pope. And this was heresy to the Roman Catholic Church at the time, and so they told him to recant. And he said, "I can't unless you can." Prove me wrong by Scripture or plain reason. I cannot recant. And then there's this famous phrase, here I stand, I can do no other. Well, the Roman Catholic Church condemns him as a heretic, and now there's a bounty on Martin Luther's head. Well, in order to escape this, Frederick uh, the Wise, Frederick the Elector, who was his prince, had Martin Luther kidnapped and taken to Wartburg Castle and where Martin Luther grew a beard. And he spent 11 weeks translating the New Testament from Greek to German. This had never been done before. Up at that point in time, the Bible was in Latin, and most people couldn't read Latin, and so the Bible was a mystery to most people. But, but Martin Luther was committed to getting the word of God in the hands of the people of God, and so he, had, he spent 11 weeks. In fact, we've got a picture of the room where he translated the Bible from Greek uh, into German so the people might have the word of God. It's just an amazing place, an amazing work that Martin Luther did. Well, as a part of the different uh, displays they had, they showed the result of uh, the re- reaction of Martin Luther's work and how it led to various denominations, Presbyterians being one of them. They had this little branch that showed Martin Luther, and then it had Zwingli, and then it had John Calvin. And then under John Calvin, there was this one-sentence summary about John Calvin and the Presbyterian church. It said, John Calvin promoted the doctrine of predestination. That's all it said. I knew that was not written by a Presbyterian because he did a lot more than just promote the doctrine of predestination. John Calvin wrote a commentary on almost every book of the Bible. John Calvin helped form the, the government that we now govern ourselves by, this representative form of government, the Presbyterians, elders. Presbyteros means elder. And as you read the uh, New Testament, we'll see in Acts in a few weeks that, that Paul and Barnabas entrust the church to elders to lead the church. And John Calvin did the hard work of giving a systematic explanation of the Reformed faith by writing the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And it's a four-volume set. It's pretty big. In fact, John Calvin doesn't talk about predestination until book three in the last few chapters. The emphasis of the Institutes of the Christian Religion is God's grace, God's love, God's sovereignty, that we're justified by faith, not by works. It's a great book. It says so much more than just about predestination. As many of you know, I went to Princeton Seminary uh, in New Jersey, and uh, Princeton Seminary is a very diverse place theologically. In fact, when we went there to visit, uh, the president told us before we enrolled, he said, now if you're conservative, you're going to think this place is liberal, and if you're liberal, you're going to think it's conservative because we hire professors from all different perspectives, and our intent is so that you might be exposed to the different perspectives in the Christian faith, and that was very helpful to me. But I've got to tell you, as an economics uh, and business finance major, my first semester at Princeton was overwhelming. There was so much to learn. I I was learning Greek, and I was learning 1,500 years of the the church history, and I was also uh, trying to to grasp uh, source criticism and the way the Bible was put together, and it was a little overwhelming. But my second semester, I took my first systematic of theology class, where our primary text was the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin. And as I read the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, I found a friend, I found a mentor, I found a a humble man of God who emphasizes God's sovereign grace, God's love for us, God's desire for us to bring glory and honor to him. For Calvin and for all of us, predestination or election is intended actually to be a word of comfort. We don't have to be anxious about how much faith we have. If you get to the last few chapters of, of book three, you're probably already a believer. You can rest in that deal, right? So if you've been reading that far along that you get to predestination, the intent is to let us know that it wasn't about us. Our election, our salvation is about God and his unconditional love for us. That he loves us before we could ever love him. As the Apostle Paul writes in in Ephesians chapter one, three to six, The apostle Paul writes this because he knew what it meant to be chosen. If you remember, Paul was on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians, and yet God in his sovereign will and love chose to use Paul to be an instrument of his grace. He blinded Paul, grabbed a hold of his attention, revealed to him who Jesus really was, and Paul was forever changed. Yes, God is the one who initiates our relationship with him. We have been chosen. We have been adopted by his love. A few months ago, I watched a movie, uh, a story about Steve Jobs. And in this poignant scene, Steve Jobs is talking to the CEO of Apple, John Scully, at the time. And John Scully is challenging Steve Jobs to, to not work so hard. He asks Steve Jobs, why do you work so hard? Are you trying to prove something? Are you trying to prove something because you're adopted? Are you trying to prove to your birth parents that they should have never let you go? And then he asks this question, Why is it that everyone who's adopted tends to emphasize the fact that they were abandoned rather than the fact that they were chosen? My brothers and sisters, do you know we've been chosen? Chosen by God. Adopted, as as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter five, uh, Ephesians chapter one, verse five. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Knowing that we were adopted, chosen by God, it makes all the difference in our lives today. When we're in school and we don't make the grade or we don't make the team despite our best efforts, knowing that we're adopted helps us know that it doesn't really matter in the eternal perspective because God has adopted us, God has chosen us, not because of what we've done, but simply because he, he loves us. And there's nothing we can do to make God love us anymore. When the harsh word is spoken by the classmate or the coworker or the friend or the family member or the relationship ends and the girlfriend or the boyfriend or perhaps even the spouse leave us and breaking our hearts, it doesn't change who we really are in the sight of God. For we've been chosen, adopted as his children. When the layoff comes and our careers seem uncertain, or the financial crisis hits and and tomorrow seems so uncertain and we're not sure what's next, it doesn't disrupt our eternal status with God. We are still God's child, chosen, adopted by him. When we understand the gospel of grace begins with God and his sovereign love for us, our natural response is is simply that of, of gratitude, to know that we are secure in Christ no matter what happens. As Jesus says in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, 28 to 29, after talking about being the good shepherd and how the sheep know his voice, he says this, I give them, his sheep, eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. This text helps us see that our heavenly Father has given us to his Son, and together they hold us. They will never let us go. For we've been adopted, chosen by him. I want to end with this quote from John Calvin's Institute of the Christian Religion. Calvin writes, until men feel that they owe everything to God, that they are cherished by his paternal care, and that he is the author of all their blessings so that nothing is to be looked for away from him, they will never submit to him in voluntary obedience. Knowing that we've been chosen leads to grateful obedience. Obedience. Feared might lead to obedience in the short term, but uh, gratefulness leads to obedience in the long term. We'll never submit to him in voluntary obedience. Nay, unless they place their entire happiness in him, they will never yield up their whole selves to him in truth and sincerity. All that we have, all that we are, is ultimately a gift from God. Our faith is a gift from God. For we've been chosen, adopted by him. We have so much to be grateful for. So in gratitude for all that God has done for us, may his love flow through us to others so that God might be glorified. After all, as Presbyterians, we know that's what life is all about. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for the great gift of your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and through his life and death and resurrection, we have have been saved, that you have adopted us as your children, called us, chosen us. And thank you, Lord, that nothing can take us away from you. Lord, that you will always hold on to us. And so, God, in gratitude for your great love, help us to be an instrument of your grace. Help us to love others as you have loved us so they might see our good deeds and give praises to you, our Father who's in heaven. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ. and all God-